Section 27 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 9, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 8, Part 1. The keen bracing air of Saint-Germain was certainly inimical to Mary Beatrice, a daughter of the mild, genial clime of Italy, and she suffered much from coughs and colds, which often ended in inflammations of the lungs and chest. Her children inherited the same tendency to pulmonary affections, and their constitutions were fatally weakened by the erroneous practice of frequent and copious bleedings, to which the French physicians resorted on every occasion. Habitual sorrow and excitement of spirit, generally speaking, produce habits of valetudinarianism. Mary Beatrice seldom writes to her friends at Chalot, without entering into minute details on the subject of health, that King James, prematurely old from too early exertion, broken-hearted, and practicing all sorts of austerities, was an object of constant solicitude to her, is not wonderful, or that anxiety and broken rest, for which her delicate frame was ill-suited, laid her in turn upon a bed of sickness, but she generally passes lightly over her own sufferings, to dwell on those of her beloved consort and their children. In one of her letters to Angelique Priolo, she says, For myself, I have been more frightened than ill, for my indisposition has never been more than a bad cold, attended for half a day, with a little fever. I am still a little en rume, but it is just nothing. My alarm was caused by the serious illness of my son, in which, for thirteen or fourteen days, the fever never left him, and scarcely did he begin to amend a little, when the fever attacked the king. I declare to you, that the thought of it overwhelmed me with affliction. But God be thanked, he had only one fit of it, and a very bad cold, of which he is not yet quit. That one fit of fever has weakened and depressed him very much, and he has not been out, as yet, further than the children's little chapel, and for this reason I would not leave him here alone, to go to Chalot. Since the last two days his cold has abated, and he is regaining his strength so well, that I hope to see him wholly recovered at the end of this week. My son is also very much pulled down and enfeebled, but he, likewise, has improved much during the last two days. He went the day before yesterday to Mass for the first time. My poor daughter has also a very severe cold and fever for two days, but it has left her for several days, and she is entirely recovered, so that, thank God, we are all out of the hospital. This morning, the King and I united in an act of thanksgiving together for it, in the little chapel. From another of her letters, which, though uncertain as to date, having only that of Saint-Germain, this 11th of December, appears to be a subsequent one of the same period, her majesty says, My sickness has been brief, but my convalescence very tedious. It is only since the last two days that I have been wholly free from the great debility and depression, which have been more distressing to me than the malady itself, and which rendered me insupportable to myself and every one else. This symptom, which the king and the prince had also experienced, looks like influenza, but we find, from the conclusion of the letter, that the poor queen had also been suffering from a severe attack of the hereditary complaint of her family, gout in her hand, which had prevented her from holding her pen. 
a great privation to so determined a letter writer as she appears to have been she says as to monsieur d'aton alas i have not been in a condition to write to him it is all i can do and you can see it without doubt in the characters to write to you to-day to you my dear mother to whom i can assuredly write when i cannot to any other for my heart conducts and gives power to my hand in the same letter there is an interesting little trait of conjugal duty indicative of the delicacy of feeling with which this amiable princess conformed her wishes to the inclinations of her husband when she perceived that they were likely to be opposed i had says she a great desire to go to chalot before christmas eve to make up for my journey at the presentation i sounded the king upon it but perceiving that i should not be able to obtain his permission without pain i would not press it we shall not therefore see each other at that vigil it may be said that this was but a trifling sacrifice on the part of the queen but it should also be remembered that she was in a state of personal suffering attended with great depression of spirits at that time the result of a long illness brought on by fatigue and anxiety during her attendance on her sick husband and children and she felt that desire of change of place and scene which is natural to all invalids above all it is the little everyday occurrences of domestic life that form the great test of good humour a person who is accustomed to sacrifice inclination in trifles will rarely exercise selfishness in greater matters i shall not says she on another occasion have the pleasure of seeing you before the vigil of the ascension for the king goes very little out of my chamber and i cannot leave him he will not even be in a state to go to la trappe so soon therefore i will not quit him till the eve of that feast the terrible malady of which mary beatrice died cancer in the breast made its appearance though possibly in an insipid state during the life of her husband king james and notwithstanding the angelic patience with which all her sufferings both mental and bodily were borne must have added a bitter drop to the overflowing cup of affliction of which she was doomed to drink she mentions this alarming symptom to her friend madame priolo in these words i cannot say that i am ill but i have always this gland in my bosom undiminished and three days ago i discovered another tumour in the same breast near the first but not so large i know not what god will lay upon me but in this as in everything else i try to resign myself without reserve into his hands to the end that he may work in me and for me and by me all that it may please him to do the sympathies of mary beatrice were not confined within the comparatively selfish sphere of kindred ties she never went to the convent of chalot without visiting the infirmary and endeavouring to cheer and comfort the sick once when an infectious fever had broken out in the convent and it was considered proper for her to relinquish her intention of passing a few days there she says for myself i have no apprehension and if there were not some danger in seeing my children afterwards i should come but i believe the doctor is the only judge of that and for that reason i wish to send you one of ours that you may consult with him about the sickness the time of its duration and how far the sick are from my apartment and after that we must submit to his judgment the peace between england and france however fatal in its terms to the cause of james the second 
was the means of renewing the suspended intercourse between him and his adherents many of whom came to pay their homage to him and the queen at saint-germain with as little regard to consequences as if it had been at whitehall a still more numerous class compelled by the natural propensity which has ever prevailed among the english to look at celebrated characters flocked to every place where they thought they might get a peep at their exiled king and queen and their children last thursday may twenty second seventeen hundred writes the british ambassador the earl of manchester to the earl of jersey was a great day here the prince of wales as they call him went in state to notre dame and was received by the archbishop of paris with the same honours as if the french king had been himself there after mass he was entertained by him and your lordship may easily imagine that all the english that are there ran to see him mary beatrice writing to her friend at chalot on the same subject after thanking her and the rest of the nuns for the prayers they had made for her son during his preparation for one of the sacraments of their church says that dear son god be praised appeared to me to make his first communion in very good dispositions i could not restrain my tears when i witnessed it it seems as if i had given him to god with my whole heart and i entreat our heavenly father only to permit him to live for his service to honour and to love him the child appears to be well resolved on that he has assured me that he would rather die than offend god mortally let us all say from the depths of our hearts continue o lord to work thus in him the queen refers in the same letter with great satisfaction to the religious impression that had lately been made on one of the young ladies in the convent of chalot we must she says entreat god for its continuance our mother her mistress and yourself will have great merit in his sight on account of it for that child has tried your patience and your charity in the same manner as the little strickland exercised that of ours and we have seen with our eyes the blessing of god on them both for which he may be for ever praised as well as for the cure for the king which we may now call perfect for the abscess is healed and the gout is gone it will require time and repose to harden the skin which is still very tender and delicate but with his patience all will be well soon the death of the young duke of gloucester the only surviving child of the princess anne of denmark which occurred august twelfth seventeen hundred appeared to remove a formidable rival from the path of the son of mary beatrice the news of that event was known at st germain two or three days before it was officially announced to the english ambassador who was first apprised of it by one of his spies in the exiled court this seems a confirmation of the assertion of lamberty that the princess anne sent an express secretly to st germain to notify the death of her son to her injured father in respect to the decease of the young prince says mary beatrice in allusion to that important event in one of her confidential letters to angelique that does not as yet produce any visible change but it must of necessity in the sequel and perhaps rather sooner than they think in france we follow our good rule of keeping a profound silence and put our hopes in god alone pray to him my dear mother that he will be himself our strength there was to have been a great hunting party on the plains of st denis for the prince of wales writes the earl of manchester in order that the english here might have seen him 
but after this melancholy news it was thought more decent to put it off a proof of respect at any rate on the part of the exiled king and queen for the memory of his innocent rival and of their consideration for the feelings of the princess anne greatly were the outward and visible signs of respect paid by the court of france to the son of james the second augmented by the death of his nephew gloucester i shall only tell you proceeds the earl of manchester that the prince of wales is to be at fontainebleau for the first time and an apartment is preparing for him september eighth manchester writes that the court of saint germain is actually in mourning except the king and queen one of the cabinet there was of opinion that they should be so far from expecting an official notification of the duke of gloucester's death that king james himself ought rather to notify it to all other princes william's ambassador goes on to report that sir john parsons of reigate one of the london aldermen and his son have both been to make their court to the late king and queen and he that is parsons says he hopes to receive them when he is lord mayor of london which he pretends is his right next year the court of france goes to fontainebleau on the twenty-third instant and the late king of england and the prince of wales on the twenty-seventh there are great numbers of english continues his excellency and it is observed at saint germain that they see every day new faces who come to make their court there there are a few of note who go but i find some that come to me and go there also very accurate is the information of william's ambassador as to the movements of the royal exiles of saint germain the queen writes on the twenty sixth of september to the abbess of chalot to tell her that she had performed her devotions in preparation for her journey to fontainebleau i renewed says she my good resolutions but my god how ill i keep them pray to him my dear mother that i may begin to-day to be more faithful to him alas it is fully time to be so since i am at the close of my forty-second year here is a sentence continues the queen which comes from the mind the hand and i believe i may say the heart of my son give it to father raffron for me and recommend us all to his prayers her reverence of chalot in all probability did as was requested for the paper written by the young prince is not with his royal mother's letter we may suppose it was of a devotional character for religion was the principal occupation of the exiled family the king tells me proceeds mary beatrice to inform our mother that he has sent her papers to the king his brother and that he has written two words with his own hand on the one for chalot he recommends himself to the prayers of all the sisters and to yours in particular this constant solicitation on the part of mary beatrice for some temporal advantage for her friends at chalot subjected her at last to a rude repulse from madame de maintenon for that lady while her majesty was speaking to her on the subject rose up abruptly and left the room without troubling herself to return an answer mary beatrice did not condescend to resent her ill manners though in one of her letters to the abbess of chalot she expresses herself with some indignation at her breach of courtesy her majesty was impolitic enough to endeavor to carry her point by a personal appeal to louis the fourteenth and was unsuccessful i acquitted myself she says in one of her letters 
as far as was possible of the commission with which our dear mother had charged me and which i undertook with pleasure but i must confess to you that the king replied very coldly and would scarcely allow me to speak thereupon i had however sufficient courage to tell him a good deal of what i had purposed i obliged him to answer me once or twice but not in the manner i could have wished he afterwards inquired after you i told him you had been much distressed that his majesty could believe that the daughters of chalot had wished to deceive him to which he frankly replied oh i have never believed that and then he appeared as if he would have been glad to change the conversation and i had not the boldness to prevent him a second time the poor queen showed little tact in importuning the fastidious and ease-loving prince so perseveringly on a subject which appeared disagreeable to him in this letter she begs her friend not to mention her having related the particulars of her conversation with louis as if it might be taken amiss by him and madame de maintenon after having importuned madame de maintenon for several years about the chalot business till she obtained at last the object of her petition mary beatrice with strange inconsistency forgot to express her personal thanks to that powerful mover of the secret councils of versailles for the favor she had rendered to her protégés at her solicitation her majesty writes to the abbess of chalot in a tone of consternation about this omission you are already acquainted she says with what i am about to tell you for it is impossible but that madame de m must have expressed her surprise to you that i conversed with her an hour and a half the other day without so much as mentioning the favors that she had obtained for you of the king having been so full of thankfulness on my own account two days before i however avow this to you and entreat your forgiveness as i have done to herself in a letter which i have just been writing to her it seems to me continues her majesty that when we have the misfortune to commit faults the best thing we can do is to repent of them confess them and endeavor as far as we can to repair them send me word she says in conclusion when you would like best that i should come and see you and what day you would wish to see my son on the day of the assumption seventeen hundred the queen attended the services of her church in the convent of chalot her majesty was accompanied by king james and their son she presented them both to the abbess and the nuns in the circular letter of chalot for that year the holy ladies give the following description of the disinherited heir of great britain he is one of the finest and best made princes of his age and he has the most beautiful and happy countenance in the world he has much wit and is lively bold and most agreeable he greatly resembles the queen his mother and also like the late king charles his uncle portraits and medals of their son were sent by the deposed king and queen this year not only to the adherents in england but in many instances to noble families opposed in principles to show them how decidedly nature had vindicated his descent by stamping his countenance not only with the unmistakable lineaments of a royal steward but with a striking resemblance of the kindred bourbons louis the thirteenth and louis the fourteenth we trace it even in the smiling dimpled face he shows in his eighth year as may be seen by the original portrait in the marquis of breadalbane's collection at holyrood his visit to fontainebleau gave great pleasure to the young prince and to his fond mother also whose maternal pride was of course highly gratified at the caresses 
that were lavished on her son and the admiration which his beauty and graceful manner excited my son she says to her friend at chalot is charmed with fontainebleau they will make us believe that they are delighted with him it is true that for the first time he has done well your great king has surpassed himself in goodness and cordiality to us pray god to recompense him for it even in this life the death of his nephew william duke of gloucester who was only one year younger than the son of mary beatrice and james the second appears to have placed the prince in a more favourable position than he had occupied since he had been deprived of his place in the royal succession the decease of william the third was confidently expected to precede that of king james who was accustomed to say that he would embark for england the instant the news of that event reached him though three men should not follow him mary beatrice was with her husband king james again at fontainebleau in october on a visit to the french court she writes to her friend at chalot on the thirteenth of the month in a more lively strain than usual i have never she says had such good health at fontainebleau as this year the king my husband has also been perfectly well he has been hunting almost every day and is growing fat we have had the most beautiful weather in the world the king that is louis as usual lavished upon us a thousand marks of his goodness and of the most cordial regard which has given us the utmost pleasure the whole of his royal family followed his example and so did all his court to god alone be the honour and glory two public events of some importance are next mentioned by her majesty in this letter at length says she our good father the pope is dead and the poor king of spain also the news arrived yesterday at fontainebleau two hours after our departure they had been three days expecting momentarily this event i found my children god be thanked in perfect health on my return yesterday evening at half-past seven they told me that you had not forgotten them during our absence i thank you our mother all our sisters and you for it with all my heart the queen's preservation from a frightful peril in which she was involved during her recent visit to the french court excites all the natural enthusiasm of her character i experienced she says when at fontainebleau the succor of the holy angels whom you have invoked for me for one evening while i was saying my prayers i set fire to my night cornets which were burned to the very cap without singeing a single hair these cornets were three high narrow stages of lace stiffened very much and supported by wires placed upright from the brow one above the other like a helmet with the visor up only composed of point or brussels lace and with lampets descending on either side a lady stood little chance indeed of her life if such a structure ignited on her head therefore some allowance must be made for the pious consort of james the second imputing not only her escape but the wonderful preservation of her jetty tresses under those circumstances to the friendly intervention of the guardian angels whom the holy mère de posay of the convent of chalot had been endeavouring to interest in her favour the fashion of the cornets was introduced by madame de maintenon and was invariably adopted by ladies of all ages though becoming to very few from the ungraceful height it imparted to the forehead mary beatrice not only wore the cornet head tire both by day and night herself but had her beautiful little girl the princess louisa 
dressed in this absurd fashion when but four years old as may be seen in a charming print in possession of kirkpatrick sharp esq from the original picture of the royal children at play in the parterre at st germain the infantine innocence and arch expression of the smiling babe who hand in hand with the prince her brother is in eager pursuit of a butterfly gave a droll effect to the formal appendage of brussels lace cornets and lappets on the little head the following letter was written by the young princess when in her eighth year to the queen her mother during a temporary absence from st germain madame i hope this letter will find your majesty in as good health as when i left you i am at present quite well but i was very tired after my journey i am very glad to learn from my brother that you are well i desire extremely your majesty's return which i hope will be to-morrow evening between seven and eight o'clock monsieur carl begs me to inquire of you if i ought to sign my letter to the nuncio louise marie p i am impatient to learn if you have had any tidings of the king i am madame your majesty's very humble and obedient daughter louise marie at saint g this twenty-first of may seventeen hundred some secret intrigue appears to have been on foot at this time for the purpose of inducing the son of james the second and mary beatrice to undertake the desperate enterprise of effecting a landing in some part of england unknown to his royal parents if any credit is to be attached to the following mysterious passage in one of the earl of manchester's ambassadorial reports dated december eleventh i cannot tell from whence they have at st germain an apprehension that the p that is the prince of wales will be carried away into england with his own consent and upon this they have increased his guards whereas formerly he had six he now has fourteen they think their game so very sure that there is no occasion he should take such a step if such a scheme were in agitation it is possible that it originated with some of the scotch magnates who were anxious to defeat the project of the union which was then contemplated by william the notorious simon fraser generally styled lord lovat makes his appearance at the court of st germain about this time with offers of service which in consequence of the horror expressed by mary beatrice for his general conduct and character were rejected and he received an intimation that his presence was unwelcome it would have been well for the cause of the exiled family if after james's death she had continued to act according to her first impression regarding this unprincipled adventurer if any judgment may be formed from the secret correspondence of the nobility and landed gentry of great britain with the court of st germain it should seem that nearly the whole of ireland and a closely balanced moiety of the people of england weary of the oppressive taxation of the dutch sovereign sighed for the restoration of a dynasty who whatever were its faults did not needlessly involve the realm in expensive continental wars to the ruin of commerce and the decay of trade in scotland the burden of the popular song there's nae luck about the house there's nae luck at a there's makel pleasure in the house while our good man's awa is well known to have borne a significant allusion to the absence of the deposed sovereign the wisdom of the proverbial sarcasm defend me from my friends and i will take care of my enemies was never more completely exemplified than in the case of king james 
a letter written by his former minister the earl of melfort to his brother the duke of perth stating that there was a powerful party in scotland ready to rise in favour of the exiled sovereign and that it was fully the intention of that prince to re-establish the roman catholic religion in england being intercepted was communicated by king william to parliament and of course did more injury to the cause of the royal stuarts than anything that could have been devised by their foes the king and queen were greatly annoyed and melfort was banished to angers but the mischief was irrecoverable in the midst of the vexation caused by this annoying business to the king and queen james was seized with an alarming fit of that dreadful constitutional malady sanguineous apoplexy of which he had manifested the first symptoms at the period of the revolution the attack on this occasion appears to have been produced by agitation of mind under the following affecting circumstances their majesties were attending divine service in the chapel royal at saint germain on friday march fourth seventeen o one the anthem for that day being from the first and second verses of the last chapter of the lamentations of jeremiah remember o lord what is come upon us consider and behold our approach our inheritance is turned to strangers our houses to aliens these words so applicable to his own case touched too powerful a chord in the mind of the fallen monarch his enfeebled frame was unable to support the climax of agonizing associations which they recalled a torrent of blood gushed from his mouth and nose he fainted and was carried out of the chapel in a state of insensibility a report of his death was generally circulated the terror and distress of the poor queen may readily be imagined but she had acquired during long years of adversity the needful virtue of the patient heroine of domestic life the power of controlling her own feelings for the sake of ministering to the sufferings of the beloved partner of her trials very touching is the account given by mary beatrice to her friend angelique priolo in a letter dated december thirteenth of the sufferings of her unfortunate consort and her own despondence during her anxious attendance in his sick chamber i seize this moment she says while the king sleeps to write a word to you by his bedside i have read your letter to him and he has charged me to return his thanks to you holy mother and to all the sisters for your prayers and for the part you take in his illness which is not painful but i fear dangerous for he is extremely weak in the right hand and leg which threatens paralysis his other hand is not affected god be thanked but he trembles with apprehension lest it should mount to his head i suffer far more than he does from the anticipation of greater sufferings for him and throwing myself at the foot of the cross my heart seems to tell me that this is not enough for that it is the will of god that it should be pierced with a terrible wound the dread that the beloved of her heart would be taken from her with a stroke fills her soul with unutterable anguish as a woman but as a christian she submits and only seeks to obtain the grace of resignation you know my weakness my dear mother and my little virtue and therefore you may judge better than any other person the extreme need i have of prayers i do not ask anything in particular for i feel no want of my former faith in devotion but only a public desire to be able to conform myself to the will of god i request only the fervent prayers of my dear mother and all our sisters and of the other monastery 
I ask yours, my good mother, who suffer for me and with me, and who know well the sad state in which I find myself. I do not hope to see you during the holy week, but we will be found at the foot of that cross, whither our crosses should be borne. The apprehensions entertained by the anxious consort of James, that he was threatened with an attack of paralysis, were fully realized, and as a last resource, he was ordered to the baths of Bourbon. The late king, says William's ambassador, the Earl of Manchester, in his official report of the 16th, is very ill, having had a second fit of apoplexy, which was violent, and has taken away the use of his limbs on one side of him. In another dispatch, dated 26th, His Excellency gives the following particulars to Secretary Vernon of the melancholy state of their old master, of whose sufferings he invariably writes with more than diplomatic hardness. What I wrote concerning James was a true account, which you may judge by his intending to go to Bourbon in November next. He is far from being well, and is very much broke of late, so that some think he cannot last long. His stay at Bourbon will be of three weeks. He is to be eleven days in going, and as long coming back. They intend to pump his right arm, which he has lost the use of, and he is to bathe and drink the waters. The anguish of the poor queen was increased by the misery of pecuniary distress at this anxious period. Having no funds for the journey, she was compelled to appeal to Louis the Fourteenth for a charitable supply. They desired says the Earl of Manchester. But 30,000 livres of the French court for this journey, which was immediately sent them in gold, I do not know, but they may advise him after that to a hotter climate, which may be convenient enough on several accounts. In short, his senses and his memory are very much decayed, and I believe a few months will carry him off. Very kind attention and much sympathy were shown to James and his queen on this occasion by Louis the Fourteenth. He sent Fagon, his chief physician, to attend him at Bourbon, and charged Durfee to go with them, to pay all the expenses of the journey, and to arrange that they were treated with the same state as if they had been himself, although they had entreated that they might be permitted to dispense with all ceremonies. The waters and baths of Bourbon were, at that era, were regarded as the most sovereign panacea in the world, for paralytic affections and gout, King James, who was fully aware that he was hastening to the tomb, was only induced to undertake the journey by the tender importunity of his consort. They bade adieu to their children, and left Saint-Germain on the 5th of April, proceeding no farther than Paris the first day. Even that short distance, sixteen miles, greatly fatigued the king. They slept at the house of their old friend, the Duc de Lauzun, where several persons of quality from England, who were then in Paris, came privily to inquire after King James's health, and to kiss his hand and that of his queen. So closely, however, were their proceedings watched by William's ambassador, that the intelligence, together with the initials of the names of the parties, was transmitted to the Secretary of State in London. The following day, their majesties had a meeting with Louis the Fourteenth at the Louvre, and attended Mass at Notre Dame. King James, says our authority, walked without much difficulty, aided by the supporting arm of his faithful queen, who was constantly at his side. End of section 27